Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, James Remsen, author of Embattled Freedom, Chronicle of a Fugitive Slave Haven in the Wary North. Jim Remsen, author of Embattled Freedom, Chronicle of a Fugitive Slave Haven in the Wary North. Why'd you write this book? It is shedding light on the little town that I grew up in, bringing out information that folks did not know that I was really interested in. I grew up there uh, back in the baby boom era, and it was a great place to grow up. I went to Philly for college and stayed down uh, here in Philly to um, have my career and raise my family, but then later on traveled around the state. Uh, this book follows a book that I wrote a few years ago that's about Indian and settler history in upstate Pennsylvania as well. Uh, I stumbled on some of that history and decided to dive in and, and learn as much as I could and wrote a uh, middle school novel about that, but it, it brings out the history of uh, conflict between the settlers and Indians, it really happened, and among the Indians themselves, uh, the Iroquois and then some of the Pennsylvania groups in the 1700s, writing it with the mind of, why didn't I learn this when I was growing up? I would have loved to know it. I'm a history buff and always was, even as a kid. What's the name of the town? The town that I'm from is Waverly. Uh, the town where a lot of the history, the Indian history is based is Athens, Pennsylvania, way up near the New York border on the upper Susquehanna. Where, so, where is Waverly? Waverly is in Lackawanna County. It's about 10 miles north of Scranton. So having written the Indian book, and that was satisfying and enjoyable and telling people about that, um, I then thought, well, okay, let's figure out another thing to write about. And then I tuned back into, you know, maybe this right under my nose is this subject about the Underground Railroad abolitionist history in my own little hometown that I knew vaguely about. It was another project to bring to light uh, information that I wished I had known more about as a kid. You know, I think there are a lot of school kids who really get deprived of some of learning some of their own local history, particularly if you're from kind of an out-of-the-way place. You're not from Philadelphia or Gettysburg or Valley Forge or somewhere where it's going to be in the textbooks already but you're from what might seem like an obscure, out-of-the-way place. Uh, there's a lot of really rollicking, important history to, to um, share about those places and make you not feel like uh, you're on the sidelines of everything and you, you're from a nowhere place. So, you know, it was written uh, partly with that mind of uh, bringing to light um, local histories uh, and, and some of the important um, ways that the little towns figured into into important national history as well. How did this off-the-beaten-path town uh, become part of the Underground Railroad? Well, there were Underground Railroad lines, you might say, coming north in different places. So, you know, this was one of them, but it had 
uh, New England settlers, a core of white abolitionists who already were very sympathetic to the cause against slavery already. Um, that was a big part of it. Um, it was up on a, a way that um, some slaves were coming, fugitives were coming up the Susquehanna and then hopping over to Wilkes-Barre, if you know your geography, then up to Waverly and then up to Montrose, another town about 30 miles up, and then up to Binghamton and up, and in some cases making it all the way to Canada. So, you know, it was local conditions. Um, and, and then as the word got out, it became somewhere that folks would direct themselves, in fact. It was uh, something, again, I knew a little bit about. Uh, we would know from tra walking around the town, this house had a, apparently a little secret place, and this was a, one of the friends of the fugitives lived here. These houses up on the edge of town, this is where the fugitive families lived and where they raised their own families over time. Is that all written down somewhere? Yeah, but not very sketchy. Very sketchy. There were a few old-timers recollections uh, written in a book about Waverly that came out in the 1950s. Not much more than that, really not much more. So I, again, decided I want to really make this a project to dig harder. Being a journalist, I you know, have no reluctance to interview people and draw what I could just from you know, on-the-spot uh, interviews, but also then knew how to go into databases, uh, looked at census records, land title, um, voting records, uh, county histories, old newspapers, uh, and church histories, you know, so it was really fascinating. I enjoyed the research as every bit as much as the writing. It's kind of hard to let go of the research. Uh, so I was able to compile a pretty complete picture over a couple of years of careful research about this and really came upon some amazing surprises. I'm happy to tell you about a few of them. Sure. Some are positive and some not so positive. On the positive side, I learned that my house where I grew up in Waverly had been occupied by one of the main white allies, one of the main abolitionists. So right in my house, he certainly was welcoming and aiding um, fugitive slaves, and I had no idea that growing up. That was so thrilling to to learn that as well. In fact, I've been back to visit there and going around to some of the houses. It's now occupied by one of the town's few black families, which is like, you know, perfect um, now. Uh, that One of the excitements was that, was learning about this um, abolitionist having, you know, operated out of my boyhood house. Also, I learned that, you know, the book is very much traces the lives of um, some black Civil War soldiers who were members of what were called the colored troops back then. And six of them, about half of the number, was in this regiment that fought at Petersburg. And their success at Petersburg in this direct charge into the, the Confederate defenses, successful you know, uh, capturing of Confederate cannon batteries, was so influential and so known that a painting was done of it that hangs at West Point now in the West Point Military Museum. I had no idea that, and that was thrilling to learn that. And, you know, bring this information back to the town of Waverly. Um, on the not-so-positive side, I learned that Waverly was a reactionary town at large as well. It was really like a tale of two villages, you might say. There was abolitionist Waverly mixed and mingled and side-by-side side with residents who were Jacksonian Democrats who deplored abolitionism overtly. And one of the main... Um, 
leading lights in the town, one of the you know leading citizens in town, was the chairman of the county Democratic Party and introduced a resolution that succeeded in rolling back voting rights for black people in Pennsylvania in the 1830s, right in town as well. So you had this dynamic tension right in Waverly between you know, the progressive abolitionists and the reactionaries who deplored abolitionism and you know, wanted no part of this project. And somehow they coexisted, which is something I grapple with in the book. Well, did you have uh, find stories of many of those people, the the uh, Southern sympathizers, yeah. ratting out the people who were running the uh, Underground Railroad? Well, that's one of the things. Logically, you might think, well, how could this coexist? You know, why did they not run the the uh, abolitionists out of town on a rail? Why did they not, um, you know, sabotage the the integrating experiment happening there? Why did they not? burn down the fugitives' houses. There's no record of any of that happening. Another paradoxical aspect of this is one of the leading abolitionists, not the man who lived in my house, but another one in Waverly, and this other um, Jacksonian reactionary man who I mentioned, his name was uh, Bedford, Andrew Bedford, they were business partners, somehow being polar opposites politically. They were, right during this very period, they operated a store together in, in Waverly. How do they do that? They did not keep journals. I, didn't, I cannot crack this uh, puzzle, how they managed, but they did. And so I'm figuring coming out of that was some kind of an arrangement that they had where the abolitionists probably would be able to successfully argue with Bedford and his Jacksonian reactionary, you know, colleagues, cronies. Um, listen, these fugitives are good people. They are pioneers like we were. They've, uh, they are hard workers. We need extra hands in the field. They're here to, their women will help in the homes. They're not looking for a bite of the apple. They don't, they're not looking to vote. They're not looking for full equal rights. They want to start over again, and they want to just be protected and minding their own business. It's a win-win, you know. Please you know, allow this to happen, and somehow Bedford agreed to that, went along with that. There's even talk that he might have harbored some as well. I don't, I'm not sure that's true, but that was a story that was passed down. So and, there were, and that he he put the word out to his minions, uh, leave him alone. So there you were know? runaway slaves who who made it as far as Waverly and stayed there? Yes, that's a big part of the book is Waverly was not just a way station that had abolitionists who were helping folks, putting them up for the night, feeding them, and then, you know, even providing funds in some cases that was happening, and, you know, go with God and send them up to the next station north. That happened. Some didn't want to stay, but there became somewhere in the 1840s um, an actual experiment, a project that was rare of having this white town incubate, you might say, a black settlement on the edge of Waverly, where there was a, land, a white landowner, actually one of the Jacksonian Democrats, a man named John Stone, but he owned land. He cut it into parcels and he was providing plots of land for the fugitive families, the fugitives and then their families as they, you know, made families. Um, and they were building little kind of shanty homes along the, this one road, this one stretch of town. And they were providing jobs for them. 
Um, they were educating the, the fugitives and their families where that wasn't any sure thing. There were a lot of town, white towns that were segregating and wanting no part of black people at all, let alone with their kids in school. What kind and of jobs Waverly was doing to that? Field hands, farm hands, um, hostlers, you know, taking care of horses in the barns. Was there mining Barney. going on? Not yet, no. Mining was just getting started down in Scranton, but it was a small, not a big industrial operation. And Waverly's north of the, the mining strip. Was there a, a black population before the Underground Railroad got started? Not in Waverly. That's what makes Waverly remarkable. I was not finding any other towns that were quite like that. You would have either a black enclave of fugitives who would form you know, go into the backwoods somewhere and have their settlement that they would start on their own and protect themselves there. Or you would have a pre-existing free black settlement in some of the county seats in the larger places and certainly in Philadelphia. And so fugitives would blend in with a pre-existing black settlement. Waverly was all white and yet it adopted a black and, you know, f fostered a black settlement on the edge of town. And I don't know of other places that were like that. Doing it w willingly uh, through religion was part of the motivation. We haven't really talked about religion and I'm happy to tell you more about that, but that was what motivated a lot of the uh, abolitionists was, um, you know, there, there's scriptural commands that you are to return, uh, excuse me, uh, if a, a um, servant escapes from his master and comes to you, you are not to return him. You are to let him live where he wants to live, even to live among you where he wants to live, and you shall not oppress him. That's in Deuteronomy. And, you know, that, I mean, that's a declaration of, you know, what, of godly living, you might say. Um, and they were taking that seriously, so they felt like, you know, we are commanded to be abolitionists, you might say. Were there many uh, slave catchers in the area? There were some, apparently. Um, there's and did they come up from the south, or were there? Well, local? yeah, uh, I'm sure some made their way up into Pennsylvania. Some of the old accounts say they were slave catchers um, from the south, even in one case, uh, the son of a slave owner. That may be. Other accounts that I think are more plausible is they came from, like, Wilkes-Barre and points in Pennsylvania, a little bit south, and were hired. They were like mercenaries, hired through... You know, a network that would, the word would come up, you know, we'll pay you $500 or whatever if you capture Joe who came up from Frederick, Maryland, and here's what he looks like, and, you know, go find him. Um, and I think most of them were local hired guns. Did you come across any incidents where that happened? Where yes. Where somebody came up and Absolutely. Yeah. took somebody back? Try, well, didn't, didn't do it successfully, at least in the Waverly's case. There's one where the, the very first man who apparently stayed in Waverly, first fugitive. He um, came into a little town right on the edge of Waverly where the, this man had a, a, a farmhouse. And the man, George Keyes, who was this founding father of the uh, Waverly settlement, um, he slipped up, knocked on the door, was being chased by slave catchers who I think were from nearby and had gotten word and they were on his tail. And he knocked on the door, got pulled in by the abolitionist who realized he was, you know, what was going on, hid him in a uh, fireplace in his house. So this fugitive scrambled up into the fire, up, you know, up in the, inside the chimney, somehow suspended himself up there, 
while the abolitionist farmer you know, was able to stave off the, uh, these angry slave catchers who were after him. Was that Rodman Sisson? Yeah, Rodman Sisson was the white man, correct. And he's the one who th later on moved to my boyhood home, which was such a thrill to learn, yes. Where did you find that story? It, you know where, an old maps. Oh, the, old, the story about that, I found out about my home through an old map that placed his home as my home. But the story was in a, um, a newspaper account and then repeated again in a book with a little bit more detail. How big a right. town was Waverly at the time? And it was, about this is, 300 people. And how many blacks were there at? At, at the peak, it were maybe 60, 70. That would be, a, you know, adults and children. If you walked around town, and what would it have looked like in the 1840s, then, 1850s? Clabbered houses, uh, a few stores in the main drag, you know, just muddy uh, dirt streets. Um, again, little shanty houses for the, the fugitives that they were actually building. Some big churches. It was a very religious town, and it was the really the mother township of that region, founded in about 18 teens by these New England settlers who had come. And one of the first things they did was plant a ba big Baptist church, the first Baptist church of that area. And then it spun off daughter churches over time. But then there also was a Methodist church that came in a little bit later, heavily involved in abolitionism, and a, a Presbyterian church who was heavily involved in abolitionism. I think, from my research, even a little more involved than the, the uh, Baptists. Uh, who did the area vote for in uh, 1860? when Abraham Lincoln was elected? It went for, um, not Lincoln. It Douglas? No, I think it went for Breckenridge. Huh? I need to go look again. I'm sorry you're catching me cold, but um, not for Lincoln. Now, it, it's funny. It was a patchwork of towns by then. And a, a neighboring town would have been a Republican town. Another neighboring town would have been a Republican town. And um, Waverly, not a Republican town. Um, so it was back and forth, uh, you know, in that in that way. Um, yeah. So it it remained a Republican, I mean, a, a Democratic town until the 1880s. Um, unfortunately, even though it, you know, the number of re progressive Republicans was growing, um, it it remained a predominantly uh, Democratic town until the 1880s. Would you tell the story about the Fogg family and how that? decision Ugh. influenced it. Yeah, that was one Red of the uh, most amazing parts of the book. I have a whole chapter devoted to the William Fogg case. Yeah, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in the book because it's something that people really don't know about. It was very important in history. So, as I said, the town was founded by New England, um, really Connecticut and Rhode Island uh, um, settlers who came over. And then there was one a uh, mixed-race family, the Foggs, came over from Connecticut, and they settled in what was then the township called Abington Township. There's an Abington up there in, in addition to the Abington around Philly. So the Abington, big Abington Township. And so this Fogg family, family was able to buy some land and come sight unseen and car clear out a farm house and farm land and a sink a well and all that and become a pioneering family in the township. And so this boy grew to manhood there named William Fogg, again a mixed-race uh, man, and became a you know, successful uh, yeoman farmer. 1835, he goes to try to vote in a state election at the local 
you know, a, a polling place, and he's turned away because of his race. And um, as I say in, in the book, um, it was ambiguous in the state constitution whether black people could vote. It simply wasn't addressed one way or the other. It's as if it wasn't really in the mind of the, of the framers, you know, that there were not that many black people. So there just was not an issue that was addressed. So black people were able to vote here and there, and it was almost like local conditions, whether they would be allowed or not. Well, Fogg, it's not clear if he had voted before, but I wouldn't be surprised if he had. But 1835, the Jacksonian, Dem you know, Jackson is president at that point. The Jacksonian Democrats are surging. They control the local establishment. They are the judges. They are the elected officials. They are, you know, the congressmen, the county commissioners. Um, they're worried about the Whigs who are rising up a bit as a, as a challenge. Um, and black people here and there are seeming, they're worried that they're going to trend toward voting for the Whigs. So there's a way they want to police the polls and not let black people vote. He's not allowed to vote, uh, William Fogg. He brings a lawsuit, a civil suit, saying his rights were infringed and he ha does have a right to vote. And it goes to the local court county court and that judge um, backs Fogg and says yes that the the uh, 1790 Pennsylvania Constitution breathed a spirit of you know of magnanimity toward anybody who was a you know met the requirements to vote including black people of course he can vote so the county appeals that to the state Supreme Court and um, the state um, Supreme Court Chief Justice, who, by the way, is from right up there in that area, a man named Gibson. There's a town name for him up there. He comes down with a scornful ruling against black people and saying no right to vote whatsoever. They, they were brought to this country as slaves. They've been uh, found to be an idle and slothful people. I'm serious. I hate to say it, but that's his quote. Um, we have no, they have no right to vote. Um, case closed. That ruling comes down in 1837-38, right as concurrently there's a state constitutional convention going on. And among the issues is uh, whether to change the state constitution to explicitly deny blacks the right to vote, to say whites only. And that um, is actually approved as well. So it's like I, I describe it as a one-two punch against this, the entire Pennsylvania black community appealed heavily by black leaders out of Philadelphia. You know, this is crazy and this must not be allowed uh, to prevail. We call on the, uh, the court to reverse itself and, you know, come to its senses. And we call on the, the uh, citizens of the state to reject this package of constitutional amendments, that one of which would deny us the right to vote. And by the way, that clause that said uh, white-only voting was introduced by uh, Andrew Bedford of Waverly. Again, something no idea about. So looking at, you know, Waverly really becomes a case study in racial attitudes at the time and, you know, through these people. So um, the, the state electorate does adopt the package of amendments, including no voting for, by black people. And that remains in place until 1870, only because of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, that overrode it. So Blacks couldn't vote in Pennsylvania in the years after the Civil War? They could as of 1870 when everybody could. But no, from 1838 until 
1870, yes. uh, no black people could vote. And we're talking no black men. I mean, no women could vote until you know, the 1900s of any race. But, uh, and we're how did that men. influence the Dred Scott decision? Right. So uh, Roger Tawney, this, the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice, cited the Fogg decision in, in saying it was, it was very much in keeping with his thinking and it you know, was, helped to motivate him as well in the infamous Dred Scott decision that really helped lead the nation into the Civil War. And so, uh, and I found citations about it in Southern newspapers as well. Uh, it became um, codified in, you know, in, in, in law. More states adopted this. So it really generated out of Northeastern Pennsylvania in this Fogg case was uh, the rollback of uh, voting rights for black people. Now, in 1850 in Washington, they passed the Fugitive Slave Law. Yes. And you write in here that uh, Governor William Johnston, a Whig, refused to enforce the Fugitive Slave Law and was narrowly defeated in 1851 by Democrat William Bigler, who insisted on enforcing it. Once it was the law, did it change things in Waverly? Yeah, it, it, it did. It was a, a bolt of fear that it sent through the black community in general and certainly among the fugitives. And there's, there, there are accounts of black people in, in Waverly and elsewhere pulling up stakes and heading north toward Canada to you know, get beyond its reach. I came upon a, um, a letter that uh, in uh, one of the, in Montrose in the, the uh, nearby county in their historical society, written by the Waverly white abolitionists to the abolitionist leaders in Montrose, which is a bigger town and was kind of the hub of regional abolitionist organizing, um, saying we have to have a conference, this is terrible, this new law has just been adopted, it declares war on the black man uh, we are worried about our colored friends, I'm quoting from the letter, who are, uh, we see walking around with fear in their eyes and loaded pistols in their pockets. So that was great confirmation to me that they um, were arming themselves um, that, and later through the statement, they, there was this conference in Montrose that happened later and it and it declared support for black people and, and condemnation of this new law, but said, who can blame a black person if he, does, if he even shoots somebody because he's out on his own, you know, nobody else is there to help him. In other words, read between the lines there saying, we're not gonna take up arms, we white supporters, we are, are your friends, but there's only so far, and if it comes to blows, it comes to violence. We're behind you applauding. We may even provide you the weapons, but you're, you're your vigilance uh, committees having to protect yourselves. Um, there is an account of, that I read about of um, some slave catchers coming up to Waverly and being uh, uh, driven off by farmers, um, black farmers, black farm hands. Right? So it did, they did seem to need to uh, wield those weapons. And at least in that one case, account that you know uh, comes through, um, they succeeded. And then there's another account of other slave uh, catchers coming through Waverly, heading up a little bit, and running into a, a white um, character who said, uh, "Yeah, they're up. They're up around the corner. You'll go find them. They got their pistols and they're waiting for you." <laughs> and the slave catchers turned around and uh, grumbled, but uh, did not continue. 
You say in your book there's a section of Waverly, or at the time called Colored Hill? That is where the, the black settlement was. That was yeah. the part yes. that was... Uh, yes, uh, correct. What's there today? Homes that have been expanded. A, a few of the frame, you can see the old house structures, but they've been greatly modernized and expanded. No black people live in Waverly anymore. But you know, let, me, let me take you back to the um, development of Colored Hill, okay? We're talking in the 1840s and 50s. So the houses cropped up one by one, um, probably built by reclaimed timbers. You know, I, there's a man who lives up there now who's an architect, and he gave me a tour through and he, one of the old slave homes, and he said, this is, bar this is barn timber. I can tell by the way it's cut. So they, it was catch-as-catch-can to be able to you know, build these, these homes for themselves. Um, so they, um, and the word got out, and more would come, and probably the fugitive families were protecting other fugitives coming through, right? So the, the kids were being educated as well in the town, which was remarkable. Um, and I'm seeing rec uh, that recorded in the old censuses, you know, that it was so safe, you might say, for them, um, that they were telling the census takers that, yes, we're, we are black, we, are, we were born in North Carolina, we were born in uh, Maryland, we were born in Virginia. You know, in other words, almost declaring, so we are fugitives. So the entire black population was fugitives? There were a few who were not, but uh, the first wave of them was fugitives, yes. And then through kin or through intermarriage with other black uh, families, there would be some free blacks who came in and joined them as well. But the core of it was fugitives. So they uh, very much wanted to have their own church as well. Now, the, the very first ones who came in, I told you about this one man, George Keyes, and another. They were actually taken into the white Methodist church and became members. But then there, as the critical mass of black people grew and a desire to have their own church you know, was expressed, um, they were allowed to worship in the, um, the village schoolhouse. But then they want, yeah, that was fine, thank you. Um, and that's where they were being given reading and writing lessons as well. But they wanted to have their own uh, building up on Colored Hill. So uh, there was great support by, from the records that I could find by the Allies to help them do that. Probably financial support, supplies, um, even a, a young woman who became their Sunday school superintendent just to kind of help them get things rolling. And they opened their little church openly had a black church. You know, again, I'm saying openly because remember, this was in violation of, of federal law and state law. There was a state fugitive slave act, but they were doing it openly, openly declaring themselves in the census that we are black and we are from the South. But also the records show um, they were building up property. Their kids were enrolled in school. That was one of the things that would be indicated on the census. It was like, you know, the American dream, you might say, for them was coming to pass. They were actually allowed, they were being buried in the village churchyard, you know, among white people. No sure thing for that either, you know, if you look at other towns. So it was uh, amenable conditions, and they were getting jobs and, you know, being able to s squirrel away some money or put it toward the church building. Why was Waverly like that when other towns weren't like that? You tell me. Really, I wish I could give you a, a informed answer. You know, there were abolitionists and allies here and there 
uh, Montrose, the town nearby, um, had a free black community, and they were getting support from white allies, but it wasn't, it already existed, you know. Waverly's in a case of it coming from scratch, and, you know, so much of it only possible through white um, patronage, you might say. Um, it was amazing, and, and bear in mind also this tale of two villages. While this is happening, Meanwhile, you've got grumbling Democrats around, too, who were being kept at bay somehow and, you know, or maybe even in some cases hire, hiring them and warming up to them individually. You know, uh, one of the issues I haven't mentioned is um, what made this issue so charged was abolitionism was infuriating the South and causing threats of secession, and there was it wasn't only that um, the, um, the Jacksonian Democrats liked slavery. Some of them actually liked slavery and thought it was a boon to the country. Others didn't necessarily like slavery. They thought it was uh, imposed on the country and regrettable, but we're not going to go to war over it. And we certainly don't want the issue of pushing abolitionism to have the country break apart, you know, to lead to what would be called disunion, right? So um, these folks might have hired individual blacks and thought, you know, he's a good person and I can kind of relate to him and I can trust him and all that. I certainly don't think we should push abolitionism and risk breaking the country apart. I'm willing to coexist with the individual black people who kind of passed muster with me. When the Civil War came, how did it affect Waverly? Well, there was, a, again, a mix of um, loyalists who were Republican and Lincoln sympathizing and wanted to put down the rebellion by force, you know, immediately, thought it was outrageous that the South had done this. And it was where there had been a buildup of anger at the South pushing the case too hard, you know, and even the Fugitive Slave Act had caused a backlash even among otherwise indifferent whites because it, uh, it was requiring white people to, to cooperate with turning over black people, which was like a nasty business they did not want to do, and they did not want to get imprisoned for not doing it. So there had been anger at the South. Um, and so there was a, a surge of uh, support for putting down the rebellion. Meanwhile, there also was the other side. There were the, uh, the Jacksonian Democrats who became copperheads. You, you say there was a, a newspaper, the Lackawanna Register. It was correct. a copperhead newspaper. Yes. How did you find that? I mean, are there uh, copies of it around? Yes. Yeah. I spent hours looking through newspaper uh, microfilm. In, in the uh, Scranton Public Library, they have, I wish they had all of them, but, uh, you know, I get a year and here and a half a year there, but going through there, it, it's right in black and white if you go in there. How's it read? I mean, what, what do you what Oh, you hostile. From it? uh, it's very hostile to Lincoln, uh, very hostile to abolitionism. Um, yeah, terrible, terrible stuff. In fact, can I read you a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. So let's go into 1863, okay? So just a, a little bit of background, and I'll, I'll read you some of this uh, Lackawanna Register. Um, so there were no blacks allowed in uniform until 1863. Uh, it would have been too risky. I think Lincoln didn't want to cause a backlash knowing, you know, things were kind of hanging in the balance. Um, he would, would get support if it was putting down the Union, if it was pushing all the way for abolition, and 
you know, enraging the South and even a, a lot of the sympathies of the, of the Northerners. Um, he didn't want to go there. But then by 1863, partly because they simply needed reinforcements, and he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation uh, that was allowing blacks in uniform in support roles. Uh, then it was pushed by uh, the Republicans even harder, let's allow blacks to be in, take up arms and be full soldiers. Uh, and that was bitterly um, debated, bitterly fought by the, uh, the Democrats, the Copperheads. Again, right around Waverly, too. Um, so we're looking here in the spring of 1863, there was a black, black soldiery was the, the term used, a black soldiery bill in Congress. So I want to read a few pages about that, if I may. Um, and I think you'll get an idea of the sentiment, uh, the mixed sentiment uh, up in, in northeastern Pennsylvania. The bill, again, the black soldiery bill, faced a barrage of condemnation from Democrats. One of its staunchest foes was the congressman from the county up there. It's Luzerne County, a congressman Wright. In a lengthy account of the floor debate in Washington, the Wayne County Herald, that's another newspaper from nearby Honesdale, reported that Wright claimed the bill, quote, would produce demoralization for soldiers of the Army had said to him that if black men were sent to them, they would regard it as a condemnation of their conduct, and they would leave the service if they could, end quote. A Gettysburg Republican remarked that officers in both the Revolution and the current war, quote, were in favor of Negro allies. Mr. Wright, resuming, said the white Anglo-Saxon race was capable of taking care of itself. But if it, had, if it had not power to maintain our positions, Negroes could not help us out of the difficulty. They were not reliable in military service. He believed that by the reconstruction of the cabinet and the restoration of McClellan, that was a, a favorite Democratic general who had been fired by uh, Lincoln, um, only by bringing him back to the army could the country be saved. Applause broke forth in a heavy volume from the congressional galleries, manifested by the stamping of feet and the clapping of hands. You know, it gives you an idea of the support for that position. Wright concluded by thundering, abandon the proposition to bring Negroes into the army or we are lost. Wright and Wayne County's Democratic congressman opposed the legislation, but the bill did clear the House 85 to 55 on its way to adoption. And in late May, the federal government issued a, an order establishing the Bureau of the United States Colored Troops. State and local officials in Pennsylvania, however, refused to set up a training camp for the new U.S. Colored Troops. So the federal military had to act quickly on its own. Camp William Penn was created outside Philadelphia in Cheltenham um, as the first and the largest of the segregated training camps. In time, it would induct 10,500 black recruits. Ten would be from Waverly. In Tunkhannock, that's another county seat in northeastern Pennsylvania, a newspaper called the North Branch Democrat had a growling response. Its editor, future Wyoming County Judge Harvey Sickler, ran an item that suggested outfitting black soldiers in loudly colored, it suggested they should outfit black soldiers in loudly colored uniforms. Quote, it is perhaps the best way to get rid of them. Those who are not killed in battle 
or who fail to die from exposure will probably then be taken prisoner, in which case they will be summarily disposed of by being shot or sold into slavery and sent away beyond the reach of Lincoln's proclamation, end quote. And that was in a northern newspaper. Mm -hmm. Furious as the Lincoln haters might have been, many in Pennsylvania's rival populace, you know, the Republicans, felt otherwise by then. As the war dragged on and casualties mounted, the notion of arming black soldiers, once widely considered, quote, lunacy, had become acceptable to an increasing number of Lincoln loyalists and Democrats called war Democrats who were willing to ally with the, the um, Republicans to put down the rebellion. In early March, for instance, an audience at, in Pittston, where the, this lecture hall in nearby town called Pittston, heard an impassioned debate on black soldiery and cast a, f a floor vote in favor of it. Militant abolitionist Henry Wright of New York noticed the new open openness during his spring 1863 lecture tour that went through Luzerne County. Last fall, he wrote in the Liberator, that's an abolitionist newspaper, last fall, multitudes insisted that the only cure was to hang the abolitionists and the Negroes. But by spring, not a voice scarcely do I hear in this region raised against arming blacks now. Rather than be damned as a nation, the people are willing to be saved by the Negro. As the Republic feels itself sinking in an ocean of blood, it calls to the outcast, out outraged, and enslaved and enslaved Negro, save or I perish. Right? So save us or I will perish. What a testimony in favor of the despised, insulted, and branded Negro it will be in the future that he forgot and forgave the wrongs inflicted on him and came forward and encountered mutilation and death to save his deadliest enemy, meaning even northern uh, uh, Democrats. For to the Negro, this republic has been his most bloody and, in, and inhuman forever since it had an existence, end quote. So you write about uh, a couple of uh, black residents of Waverly who volunteered for the Army. I do. That's a big part of the book. How'd you find that? It comes that? through here, and you see it on the cover. Oh, yeah. What is uh, that cover a picture of? Yeah. That is a, a very uh, powerful recruitment poster that was produced actually by the Union League in Philadelphia, which was a very um, Lincoln-supporting uh, entity that was raising funds for the black troops and funds for their black, their, I mean, their officers, training their officers, and um, funds for Camp William Penn. So th they produced this poster that I'm told was circulated in the South as well as the North. It doesn't have too many words on it, figuring... Um, you know, it, the, some of the black readers might have been not able to read and write. It's a, a very uh, powerful image that shows, it's, uh, to me, this man in the middle in uniform is a, um, like a Moses figure saying, come with me. I will show you what is needed and how we can liberate our, ourselves. So you see on the one side uh, black slaves um, in rags and tatters, one of them tearing up what I th think is probably a, a southern flag. Uh, there are chains that have been broken on, on the ground and a, a black soldier coming and, and breaking another man's chains. You see in the distance a, black, uh, a line of black soldiers going into combat. Um, and on the other side, you see what you might think of as the promised land. Do this, we will get our freedom. 
You can you see a man sitting at his leisure in a rocking chair reading, being able to read a newspaper, putting down the plow. You see his children well-dressed, and you see his children going to school, public school. All miraculous uh, promises that, you know, came to pass, in fact. And having a church, you know, a regular church, being able to worship under the flag, tell under me the about American the, flag. Tell me about the Waverly uh, black residents who volunteered. Yes. You have the Norris brothers, were two of them? Correct. There were 13 of them. And they, they volunteered uh, pretty much as soon as they could in 1863, and some joined in 1864. Why would they have volunteered? They had the chance to fight for their country and try to free their people in the South, right? We don't have diaries for any of them to know why they went. I mean, who knows? They may have gone out of peer pressure, too. Um, but it was, you know, uh, considered um, time to, to go and take your stand for your, your people. They went to um, nine of them were trained at Camp William Penn here in, in, in Cheltenham. Uh, one was in the 54th, the famous uh, experimental regiment in Massachusetts. So um, I'll tell you what these men did. I focus on uh, nine of the 13 because they fought in two particular regiments that had some very um, powerful, intense action in the war. Um, so the Norris brothers that you mentioned and another man named Sampson, they uh, went down and were in the first regiment to be trained at Camp William Penn, the third colored regiment. Um, and they then were sent down to um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina by boat. They were taken down to the wharf in Philly and, and, and put on a boat and sent down to right into the action. Um, I, I must say, too, they were supposed to march through Philadelphia, you know, with their weapons and in flanks and march down the, uh, through the streets and be, you know, cheered along on their way into battle. Uh, that, that march had to be canceled, the parading of them had to be canceled because the mayor was afraid of white backlash, that you know, there would be violence from white racists against just the very notion of blacks in, with weapons and in uniform under the flag marching down the streets. Philly was not a friendly place for black people. It had a lot of Southern sentiment, a lot of Southern um, built business connections, social connections. So, um, and Frederick Douglass actually writes about that, and I have some of that in the book. Um, so the third, they are sent quickly down to action in Charleston, South Carolina, and you, I have a chapter devoted to that bloody action down there. So the 54th Massachusetts had been there already. There was a movie made of what happened to them called Glory. It came out about 25 years ago, maybe, with uh, Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman. Matthew Broderick, they charge across the sands of uh, these, uh, these barrier islands. Uh, they're guarding the mouth of Charleston uh, Harbor. You know, it's a very strategic city and was heavily guarded by the Confederacy. So there's an effort to do a frontal attack on this key um, fort, Fort Wagner. And they are decimated, basically. They cannot do it. But they fight so bravely that you know, their renown grows really legendary. But like half of their, their number is wiped out. So a month later, the third comes in as among the reinforcements. And they try again. This is the third, U the you third USCT. Yes, United States Colored Troops Infantry Regiment. Mm -hmm. Their job is to dig zigzag um, trenches up toward the fort, right, to get, you know, be able to assault the fort that way. 
and very dangerous work to be doing because there's rocket fire coming in at them, you know, cannon fire, sniper fire. There, there are, um, they booby-trapped some of the sand, so soldiers are blowing up as they're going forward. It was really terrible uh, duty, but it succeeded. They get close enough, and the Confederates uh, pull back from the fort. But several of the Waverly men are badly injured. Norris brothers are, you know, the shell fire, you know, explodes on them. Um, lifelong injuries they come back with. And then they go down to Florida where their duty is not only garrisoning some forts but going off on these raids into the Confederate countryside to liberate slaves, to confiscate whatever Confederate weaponry they can and engage with the Confederates, but also to liberate slaves from plantations. And so, you know, you can imagine how powerful that would have been for, say, the Norris brothers whose dad was a fugitive. They, you know, had grown up in freedom in Waverly, but to go back and be able to liberate hundreds of their own people directly from, from bondage, that, that happened in Florida. And that's recounted in the book. Six of the Waverly men were in another regiment called the 22nd USCT. And they had their training a little bit later. And they were sent down to Virginia and they quickly were caught up in this uh, huge campaign called the Overland Campaign. Toward the end of the war, we're getting into 1864, and you know, Confederacy is toward its end. So um, there's a move uh, from the coast inland to try to encircle and choke off um, Richmond by first hitting Petersburg, which was south of Richmond, actually. But they were sending supplies up, and so it was a way to cut off the railroad lines, but just cut off the support for, for Richmond. So there was a big um, campaign that uh, involved um, Petersburg. So the um, my guys, I, I've come to think of the, <laughs> the Waverly soldiers as my guys. So six of my guys were in the 22nd. They had several preliminary engagements, but then in this historic, uh, momentous day of June 15, 1864, on the opening of the big assault on the defense lines around Petersburg, the 22nd is in the spearhead. And they, they are sent against the um, Confederate defenses. And they have a, they start before dawn, and they march toward the lines. And they have an outlying um, defensive inst installation starts firing at them. And they are, they take some pretty heavy casualties. There's a, a brigade of black regiments, including the 22nd. So they are able to attack that um, cannon emplacement and, and capture it. And this again happens in front of white troops who are leery, a lot of them are black soldiers. So here they are proving their worth, their courage, you know, their stamina under fire, and they succeed in capturing these Confederate cannons. Or pictures actually ran in Harper's Weekly of that happening that are in the, in the book. Um, and that's only the beginning. By then it's just dawn. And then they fight until dusk. And part of it, they're caught in this open field, getting fire from the side and the front for hours in the midday sun, just crawling forward and as fighting is going on on both sides of them. And finally, there's a one of the regiments breaks through a part of the, um, the defenses. And so there's a general order to attack. So they all come out of their ground and surge up the hill to take these various, this line of, of cannon emplacements. So the 22nd 
it was part of that. And and there's, a, you know, the Waverly, the companies that of the 22nd that the Waverly guys were in were right there in the action, jumping into the cannon emplacements and, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, a number of them badly injured. Um, and that's that was done again in front of the white troops and 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 um, field correspondents for the newspapers, who were later writing about that, how amazing uh, they fought un under fire, and you know one soldier saying they fought better than white soldiers fight. Yeah, so it was um, lauded, and again I mentioned earlier this painting, of the 22nd charging up the hill. Uh, is, was painted in the late uh, 1800s, and now it hangs at the West Point Military Museum. When the well, war ended, uh, how many of the uh, Waverly soldiers returned home? Um, let me give me one minute, and I'll get to that because I was going to say uh, the this 22nd continued its uh, exploits, where they then were one of the first regiments into Richmond after Richmond fell, and then uh, General a few days later Lincoln is shot assassinated and General Grant asked for a black regiment to come and represent the black troops and he wants a good battle-tested regiment. The 22nd is selected and including folks from my company so not only they were hustled out of the trenches and you know under orders sent right into Washington for the, they wanted them to be um, in the parade leading Lincoln's body up to the Capitol from the White House you know big national procession and the Waverly Regiment is led to the beginning of the parade. So they led the national procession up to the Capitol, which is amazing to, to learn that as well. And then um, they finished their time uh, until their time is up. You know, their three-year enlistment is cut short and they are sent home. So one of them, um, to get to your question, one of them died early. A fellow who actually was 15 a guy named Francis Asbury Johnson, preacher's kid, who was too young, but he really wanted to fight, so he must have lied about his age. And he was wounded at Petersburg after this June 15th um, attack that I talked about, you know, this amazing day. They were still there in the trenches because we had this siege that continued for months and months. He and George Keyes Sr., the founding father fella, the same day, July 4th, of all days, 1864, they were both shot by snipers, badly wounded. And so this Francis Asbury, who was by then, I think, 16, um, was in a field hospital, did not recover, did not recover, realized he wasn't going to get better, and in the hospital asked to be sent home. And he went home, and he died. Actually, by then, his dad, the preacher, was assigned to New York, a town in New York. Francis went up and died in the winter of 65. Um, he died. And then um, all the others came back to Waverly except for him. Um, but it was a sad ending for a young fellow who... Um, and then the same with uh, George Keyes, who also was badly wounded that day. The wounds ultimately killed him as well. He made it back to Waverly and must have died in his bed. You, you have a, a lot of... Uh, grave sites of the uh, yes subjects of your book and one of them uh, one of the Norris brothers was it lived until the 1920s 23 I think he died yes he became an itinerant preacher an AME preacher going all over in mostly western Pennsylvania and into uh, West Virginia as well and in fact let me mention I'm going to meet 
the descendant of uh, the Norrises in a couple of weeks. In, in doing this book, I, I, I w was given a grant by a community foundation up in the Scranton area to help me do this research. That enabled me to do some field research, to travel to the battlefields, and to uh, go to Washington several times to go to the National Archives. And you know, travel, I've traveled back and forth a whole lot. But I also used some of the money to hire a professional genealogist to try to track down some of, if there were living descendants, not of all of them. I, I mean, that would have been too, too ambitious to try to. So I picked out um, Norris's, because Lot Norris was um, the man who was the fugitive. And then his sons were Peter and Joshua, the two Civil War soldiers. Lot by then was too old, so he probably died in Waverly. We don't know where he's buried. but um, So I, I picked the Norris family out and asked this genealogist to see what he could find about uh, taking it forward to today. And then um, Leonard Batchelor, whose name I don't think we've mentioned yet, but I think was the main white ally in Waverly, and see if he could find uh, living descendants of, and he did for both in both cases. So I was able to contact um, descendants and both to tell them what I've learned in case they didn't know this and share you know as much as I could with them see if they also had information they could share back to me so I could you know include it in the book maybe they had stories diaries photos anecdotes well neither of them knew the two initial calls I made knew anything did not even know this history you know that one was had an abolitionist ancestor active, you know, heroically a active um, abolitionist ancestor, and that the other had a fugitive who had come out of bondage and, you know, and, and been so active in, in Waverly. So I later located one of the women who uh, lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and she is a um, descendant of Lot Norris and Peter and, and Joshua, didn't know this history whatsoever, so was thrilled to have learned it all. And she's driving with a cousin who's also descendant in two weeks, two weeks, three weeks, three weeks I guess it is now, to Waverly. And I'm driving up, I'll be up there, and I'm going to show them around. But not only that, the real, and we're going up to Montrose where Peter is buried. The, her, the other, Joshua, is the one, the itinerant, he's buried around Pittsburgh, and I'm not sure they're going to be able to go there. Let me tell you the... the we are just about out of time. Can I tell you the piece de resistance, or we don't have time? Uh, we're, uh, I'm afraid to, to get that. People will have to read the book because we're out of time. We've been speaking with Jim Remsen. He is the author of this book, Embattled Freedom, Chronicle of a Fugitive Slave Haven in the Wary North. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.